Walkers. Welcome to No Prize from God, episode 10. I'm your host, Ryan J. Downey. No Prize from God features conversations with creative people about belief, unbelief, and everything between. Our guest this episode is Patrick Slow Roll McKinney, National Secretary for the Soldiers for Jesus Motorcycle Club. Patrick's also a retired Army veteran. Slow Roll preaches weekly at a small biker church in the Sandhills region of North Carolina. He's also the author of the book Unchained Rebel, an Outlaw Biker's Toughest Fight. So let's get into it. Here's my conversation with Patrick Slow Roll McKinney, National Secretary, Soldiers for Jesus, MC. This is No Prize from God. Because I, I spent my career in the military and psychological operations. So everything I did was working with different cultures and subcultures and, mm. and learning about all these little tribal groups that, that we were dealing with. So when I, when I wrote this book, I was really wanting to introduce people to what I've learned is a self-segregating subculture within the United States and it has all of the different dynamics of any other culture. I mean, when we talk about, you know, who are the one percenters and who are the veterans clubs and the, and the motorcycle ministry groups or the or Christian clubs like ours, the, um, they, they all have a consistent culture that's based around their protocols. And if you don't understand that, it's hard to interact in that world. I mean, you can go in and try to do ministry work, but like I say, I wouldn't send a missionary to South America that didn't speak Spanish. Right. So if you want to be a missionary in the motorcycle club world, you're going to have to learn about this, this subculture that you're going to walk into because it's their Island. We're being invited to it. And so that's why when people ask me, why do you guys prospect? It, it takes a year um, from the time we meet somebody to the time they put on a patch. It's a minimum of a year. If there's a hangaround period. There's a prospecting period. And they ask, well, why, is it, why in a Christian club do you prospect? And I said, the same reason any club prospects. We want to make sure 
that you're on the same sheet of music that we're on, that you have us, and, and we're looking for something different than other clubs. I know the veterans clubs are, are vetting their guys during their prospecting period to make sure that they are in line with what the organization stands for. But, you know, with us, we also have to find guys that have a servant's heart and understand that you're going to have to learn the protocols so that when you approach somebody, you're showing them due respect. It, it, it's not, uh, you're not just putting on this patch and all of a sudden you're, you're magically a motorcycle club guy. We're going to figure out if you're a motorcycle club guy or not before you ever put that patch on because they always say the, the patch doesn't make the man, the man makes the patch. So, yeah, and, I would, and also being a ministry, um, you know, yeah, it, you're you're not going to take a a brand new believer and have them go plant a church and be its pastor. There's got to be some sort of uh, guidance and, and period of growth and, and learning and well, understanding. Absolutely. It, like if we have somebody that comes out, we're working with somebody and say they were they were in heroin heavy and and they get clean and they come to Christ. They have this personal interaction with, with, with Christ and they get saved. That person is in a position that he needs to be ministered to. He needs to be discipled. That person's not ready to go out and be a minister. So even though the club may be the, the one that interacts with that person in the beginning and helps them get clean and come to a saving faith, that doesn't mean they're going to just then start prospecting and become a club guy. It may be years of seeing them get involved in another, maybe in a church, start out in, in a ministry and work their way up in life to where they're ready to then go back and minister to those that they used to run with. So, and that's really one of the reasons we started here in North Carolina. I started Sand Hills Biker Church. That was kind of an organic movement. We didn't ever really plan on having a church. We just had guys that would come through our ministry and get clean, get sober, get off the streets, come to Christ. But then what do we do with them? And it's not, you know, we're scripturally, we're supposed to make disciples, not make converts. So if somebody becomes a convert, we have a responsibility for discipleship. And if they're not going to be part of the club, what are they going to be a part of? Where do we, where do we keep those connection points with folks so that we can, you know, maybe go with them to their rehab visits, um, where, you know, those hospital visits when we meet somebody and then they come out and we visit them at home while they recover. So that's where we started this Sand Hills Biker Church so that they have a place where they can belong without moving over to the ministry side, which is the motorcycle club. And now some of those guys from the church may end up in the club, but we decided that needed to be two distinct separate organizations. Mm. One is the way I like to look at it. The club guys are the combat medics. They're going out on the battlefield. They're looking for the wounded. They're building relationships with the people in the other clubs. When guys are hurting, they're there to minister to them on the field but when you find somebody on the battlefield that's wounded, you have to get them to the, the MASH, the Combat Field Hospital. And, and that's what the church is. 
we bring we bring the wounded in, but then the church can be there to disciple and grow and help through the healing process while our medics are continuing to run. And and, and, med- and, and medics go- and medics are more sort of first aid, whereas the hospital is uh, long term care. Exactly. So when we have inter- the this isn't a screen door evangelism kind of ministry where you're going to show up to an event for an hour and punch somebody in the chest with a gospel track. This is start out with handshakes and formal introductions, be there to assist, be there when they, when their life brings them to a point of crisis, working your way to to where they're starting to see you as a club brother. Then you get that phone call. Hey, one of our guys went down and he's in the hospital. And as soon as that person goes in the hospital, we'll have somebody there every single day making sure that they're taken care of, their family's taken care of, or somebody dies. We're coordinating with the funeral homes. We're coordinating with the the ministry team that's going to actually do the service. We're talking to the families. So we're doing all of those ministry needs. So then you go back to the thing where it's an entire subculture. Within that culture, you have your ministry teams, you have social clubs, you have organizations with every organization has their own purpose, but we're all interlinked somehow. So your first question was, what's our relationship like with other clubs? If we're being who we say we are and we're very consistent in that, they're going, they're going to stay who they are and stay consistent with who they are. But the relationship is we're both, we're both motorcycle clubs. We're both club guys. We're all bikers, but they understand our intent and purpose. We're there to serve them and show them the love of, of Christ through service, not just setting up a booth and handing out gospel tracts and Bibles. This is, in this holiday season, is always a, a big time for us, but it's all year. If they're having an event, we may show up an hour early and just help set up, ask if they need extra tables and tents. I mean, we may stick around to the end and help tear down. And then that hour after tear down is when the real conversations start to happen. And ministry has to be relational. If you're not, if you don't have a relationship with the people you're trying to minister to, you're really not ministering. And I think um, I would imagine, given the way that uh, you guys handle yourselves and, and represent your beliefs and and doing that real sort of service and, and putting that faith into action and just being available uh, as you explained as as human beings that are there to support and even have a handshake or a hug available not so much uh, browbeating people with theology right out of the gate I would imagine that that enables your club to stay out of any of the conflicts or, or politics that might come up between other clubs would that be a fair assessment it is there's there's two ways to be neutral stay by yourselves and don't support anybody or be colorblind and support everybody equally Hmm. was as a christian club our neutrality is that we're colorblind we'll go we'll go to, to any club in the area and everybody's getting the same level of respect same level of support and really that's that should be the church model. You know, it, you don't just go knock on the doors of two and $300,000 houses and invite people to church, right? Mm-hmm. It, it ought to be everybody in your community, anybody you run into, 
is, is potential. Your, your, is that your mission field? It's where you live. Yeah. Um, so the way we're neutral, and and but we have to follow through with that. But over time, we've gained the respect of other clubs that when they see our patch, they know that our guys have been vetted, that they're committed to ministry, and that they're we're going to police our own. It's not uncommon to see our guys center punched where if they get it's a discipline where you take the center of their patch out of their back. And um, then sometimes we'll knock them back to prospect again. But they see us doing the same types of disciplines with our guys that they do with theirs. But we're holding them to not only a club bylaw standard, but also a Christian standard. Mm. So something that you may not get center punched for in a secular club, you could get put out for in our club. Because if you're not living the biblical standard, you're not going to be a part of this organization. Now, we, we may set you aside and minister to you, but you're not going to go out there wearing the patch as a representative of the organization. And th- that's, that's church discipline. But how many churches, when's the last time you heard a pastor talk about church discipline from the pulpit? <laughs> Right. Does, most churches, it doesn't happen. I took I took my pastor and the president of the missions board to our local dominant club's annual Christmas party a couple years ago, and it was very it was interesting walking them onto the property, and of course, you know they're in the the dockers and the polo, and, and mm-hmm. they were out of completely out of place, and but they watched how we were greeted, and guys come up and they give you the bear hug and the kiss on the cheek. And, hey, how's your wife? How's your son doing? They know my kids by name. At the end of the event, I asked him, I said, what, what was your takeaway? And the pastor said, there is a familial love in that community that we are missing in the church. Wow. Where when, when we call each other brother, it's earned. It, 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 you don't just start out calling somebody. We always say, don't, don't bro me if you don't know me. And, <laughs> I like and, that. You know, you, you turn around in, in church on Sunday in between the singing and preaching and everybody shakes hand. Good morning, brother. Good morning, brother. Just turn around and shake their hand and say, good morning, center. You know, make sure they know where they're at. I'm like, you know, <laughs> yeah, good morning, center. How you doing? Because until you've been to my house, you've met my family, we've broken bread together. We, we've gone through some life together. Now, now you call me brother, but then a brother is going to, that has to be something that's enduring. Yeah. You know, yeah. It, it's not call, call me brother until, you know, we have our first, you know, disagreement and then the thing falls apart. But uh, that was an awesome visit for them. Um, I had a guy come up to me that he's never worn a patch. He's always just done some contract work and, um, and it was really cool because he came over and he put his arm around me, kissed me on the cheek, asked about my son, asked about my daughter. And then I introduced him to my pastor and, uh, and, and the missions board president. And uh, this guy goes, hey, it's a good effing dude right here. <laughs> now, he didn't say effing. He's not sanctified. You know, so I'm using what he says. He's a good effing dude right here. And, and this guy looks like the type of guy that would plant a hammer in your skull. You know, <laughs> he, he's, he just he, he, if he said he was going to hit you, you'd take his word for it. And it was funny seeing their faces and they're like, well, we believe he is. And, you know, like, it was almost a challenge, you know, <laughs> to say, this is, this is, my, this is my, my brother. And, and I'm telling you, he's a good dude. And, um, 
and, and and then you know, we said goodbye. He walks away. Then he turns around. He comes back. He grabs me by my cut. And he said, you know what? It takes more of a man to do what you're doing than what I've done. Wow. And the re- and that moved me so much. And I've thought about it since. And I think what really connected with him was that I introduced him to people outside of his world that were important to me. And I wasn't ashamed of him. I treated him like a human. And, and it touched him. And he came back, and we've had a great relationship ever since. I mean, I knew him before, but after that, things started to change. And uh, I heard he got a job with the with the city, um, you know, using a wrench for the purpose it was intended, <laughs> and, and, and started using it to whack people. I mean, it was a, it's just a, it's a really nice story. But those are the types of successes that we're having in our missions field that a lot of the church folks are missing out on. Because they're going to church on Sunday and checking the block. I did I did my spiritual deed for the week, and they're going to the house, and they're they're missing an entire world of of hurting people that are somewhere in their phases or stage of life where they're struggling, and we can come along and help them through that journey, because everybody in our organization has a past, and we're not ashamed of it. The shame's very low. I'll bring guys together and I'll say in this in this group on Sunday, we have a pothead, a crack addict, a heroin user, a womanizer, a brawler, and then two guys that did some bad stuff. The shame level is very low. You can't say anything in this group that's going to shock anybody. And then everybody starts looking around trying to figure out who was who. And they never guessed the crackhead because he's fat now. You know, and you don't think of a fat crackhead. So, and, but... Everybody's like, yeah, I'll tell you my story. You know, the guy, the, the guy that was on the crack pipe, he said, he'll tell you. His, he was using crack, had a wife, had his kids. His wife finally said, it's neither the crack pipe or us. You can't have both. And he said he had to stop and think about it because he was so addicted to crack. He was losing, willing to lose his wife and two kids over it. And eventually he got clean. They came to Christ. He started serving, met soldiers. Now he's working a motorcycle ministry and I mean, he's all in committed, but when somebody comes up to him and they say, Hey, I haven't had a needle in my arm for three days, but I'm, I really got the itch. He can sit down and talk with them about that. He's not embarrassed or ashamed. He's a, say, Hey, you know, I, I used to self-medicate with a ton of whiskey. I got really good at it. And, um, you know, I brought a lot of my downrange stuff back to the house. And treated my kids like crap. I'm past that. Where are you at in your life? It, it brings to mind that Oscar Wilde quote, uh, you know, every saint has a past and every sinner has a future. And I, I like, uh, you know, I like hearing that idea of meeting people where they're at and, uh, and being honest about who you are and where you've been to have there that conversation. Guy, there was a guy, um, where was that? He wrote a um, he wrote a lyric. And I, I thought I wrote it down because I thought it was pretty cool. Um, it was no one should live their lives like they're already dead. It's, it's an old <laughs> band. I think it was called uh, what Burn It Down or something like that. I love I, 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 <laughs> the amount of homework that you've done is. Uh... <laughs> um, I mean, it wasn't Ice Nine. It was Burn It Down and. Uh, <laughs> And, and yeah, it was let the dead bury the dead. 
But when I read that, that no one should live their lives like they're already dead, I, I said, no, they should live their lives like they're never dying. Mm. Because mm. once we get a hold of the fact that all of us have an eternity somewhere, one, that it, we, we can live with hope of an eternity that's, that's beyond any trials that we're going through in this life. But people that don't have hope and they don't think they have an eternity, you start looking at your life thinking this is as good as it gets. And I don't care how, how good your life is, there's, it, this can't be as good as it gets. Everybody has struggles and trials. So when we're out there, that's what we're doing is we're trying to take hope to people and say, don't live like you're dying. Live like you're going to live forever. But where are you going to live? How are you going to live? Um, that that's the whole message of the gospel is, you know, there, there is something beyond here. And I don't know. I did, I did. Yeah. I did a little bit of research on you. Um, <laughs> you did. I, I know who I, who I was talking to. I, but, pre I, I appreciate the homework. <laughs> <laughs> but, turning the tables. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, you're supposed to be the investigator, but, um, <laughs> but I kind of do that for a living. But yeah, I, you know, I, and I, I enjoy it. Oh, it's quite um, impressive. And, and now I loved it when I when I listened to the other other podcast and the and the questions that you were you were asking about. You know, what do you say to the guy that's an atheist, or what do you say to the guy that um, doesn't doesn't believe that he's in, in a faith? You know, he has no faith. You know, he's searching, mm -hmm. and. Um, and to me, that was those are awesome questions to be asking and, and having those conversations on any media platform. But as believers, I don't know that we're always prepared to answer that correctly. Mm. Um, we're if somebody's struggling, as long as they're asking the questions, I'm okay with that because they're they're on their journey, and I need to present myself in a way that's consistent with my faith, but allow you to ask your questions and go through your struggles and, and just be consistent. And it may be years of our relationship where it, what I tell people is if you, if you take your little short span of life and stretch it out and lay it over history, you can see that there's, there's nothing new under the sun and everything that you've gone through in your life, if you're at a place right now where you have rejected that childlike faith where you'll believe in anything, and now you're in a place of seeking, and maybe you're, you're relying on science, well, stretch that out over history where we went through wisdom, wisdom traditions, where everything was based on, on faith in something. And then we went into modernism where we were seeking answers from science and we rejected the, the wisdom traditions. But in modernism, we couldn't find all the answers we were looking for. So then we started to return to wisdom and meaning faith to try to answer the gaps that we couldn't find in our science. So when somebody comes to me and they say, you know, I don't believe in God, I'm an atheist. And I say, well, what do you believe in? And they, they talk about science and, and things that they can measure. And, and I'll say, that's fine. I encourage you to keep asking questions. And when you run out of answers, then we can start talking about faith. Because I know that 
we can't and find the answers to all of the questions. I can just point up and say, where does that stop? Where does the sky stop? There's people, been scientists been trying to solve that as long as there's been stars in the sky. But eventually you're going to run out of answers, but you're still going to have questions. And, that, and then you and I can have a talk and, and we can talk about where you're struggling in your life and you're struggling with the concept of God. And I can show you that that's okay because that's always been the case. And I'll take somebody to, to scripture, but I'll give them examples of where Jacob struggled with God and referred to God as the God of his parents and grandparents. He, it wasn't, he, Jacob didn't see him, God as his God hmm. until he struggled with him. And after that personal struggle, he built an altar to his God, but it wasn't until, until the struggle happened, you know, um, Job, er, er, the book of Job takes him through this entire span of trials. And at the, at the end of the book of Job, he says to God, I heard rumors about you. I heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. It, it wasn't until after the struggle where he saw God. And I always I refer people back to Matthew 7, where the seeking you will find. So if you're seeking, that's fine. Keep, keep seeking. I encourage you to seek. D dig into science. Dig into everything that you can measure. But when you run out of measures, come and talk to me, and I'll, and I'll tell you about a couple named Adam and Eve. You know, the first sin was seeking knowledge absent faith. God said, here are all your provisions. It's a perfect world. I created you. Lean on me. The devil came along and tempted them with the fruit of knowledge, the knowledge of good and evil. When they stopped having faith in God and they said, you know what? I'd rather rely on, on knowledge, wisdom, or um, science. I, I want to know for myself. I'm not going to trust that God knows and he's got it covered. So they got into, into sin. That was eating that fruit of knowledge. But then what they have to do? Eventually, they had to turn back to God because they tried covering their sins and couldn't. And he said, now, the only way we can cover those sins is through an animal sacrifice. He was introducing man to the blood sacrifice requirement to cover sin. So now they have this knowledge of sin that they didn't have before. And you think if we didn't have knowledge of sin, that's the true Garden of Eden, because we wouldn't know the pain of seeing somebody else struggle. I've walked through junkyards in, in Cambodia and watched kids skin and rats to eat. I, I've gone through Thailand and seen the kids that are sell, sold into sex slave, uh, slave and sex trade so money could be sent back to their families. You know, gone through UNHCR camps of refugees where women and kids are there because their husbands have been killed, the wells have been spoiled, and you know that they don't really have much of a future. And you see that 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 pain and that that hopelessness that, that you feel like you can't do anything about. But then you, you can circle back and say, you know, we do have an eternal hope that's beyond the garbage and crap in this world. And, you know, so that that's my 
I guess that's my my take on it. I don't know if I got off on a tangent there. Yeah, it was a great tangent. It it, it sparked it sparked a number of different thoughts and and questions for me along the way. One of which was, uh, you know, you mentioned that idea of of Job and you know talking about kind of someone else's God um, before it became his. And you know that's that's a topic that's come up on this podcast before, particularly when. You know, when I'm in conversation with someone who's maybe a pastor's kid or, you know, that grew up in a very churched environment or, or very uh, whatever their religious uh, practices, um, whatever faith background they have, where it was. And I'm always curious when there where there's that turning point where someone decides that this isn't just what they were raised with. Um, this is something of, of meaning and value to them specifically and that kind of mm moment of their own discovery um, have you ever you ever go, read fowler no um fowler the f- first book was stages of faith and the second one was becoming adult becoming christian but what fowler did in stages of faith and it's not j- just a christian faith what he what he talks about is he lines up the works of erickson piaget kohlberg each of those three you got erickson's eight Piaget, I think, was uh, four stages, and Kohlberg was six stages. Um, all these guys break down human life into stages of development. And in each stage, we have a different understanding or different way of looking at, at our life. Then there's an overlap period, a transition period. And during that overlap transition, it, it's always a little bit of conflict and struggle. So we can we can almost plan for those and see them coming. But what Fowler did is he took faith, like it starts out with the child faith where you'll believe in Santa Claus and the tooth fairy. You'll believe in whatever somebody else tells you truth is. Then you move into early adolescence through late adolescence, which is usually around your 20, 22 year old mark, where you start to question well, what do I believe? I know what my authorities have told me, but what do I believe? But because in adolescence, we're still in that pack animal group where we we tend to go with the crowd. We're kind of trying to find ourselves, but we're willing to change ourselves to, to fit in with a certain group of people. But that's a rebellious phase because we don't want to believe what our parents believe just for the sake of of them saying it. We, we're trying to find ourselves. So sometimes we'll reject the faith of our father through that period of rebellion and seeking. And then at some point you break away from your, your group. And, and maybe your group is that group of atheists, or maybe your group is that agnostic where we, we just don't care. And you, you kind of run away from it for a while, but then you get off on your own. Maybe you have your own kids. And you get into that that later stage where you say, well, wait a minute, I, I, my group became an authority just like my parents were. Mm-hmm. So I'm just really going along with the group. I need to separate from that. And then you get this little life crisis of what do I believe? That's when people do go through that that struggle we were talking about, where, where we see – And and he takes it through fantasy faith and then the authority influence, the group influence, and then that self-seeking. And 
the self-seeking and the struggle is where crisis can be a beautiful thing because you run out of answers and you, you go through some type of crisis in a, in, a, in a fiction novel, that would be your inciting incident, you know? And it, it, <laughs> right. So, so you've got all this backstory, but then all of a sudden you hit this, this inciting incident, rather it be, holy crap, I've got these kids that I'm supposed to raise and I don't know how to raise them or, or, or some other crisis has come into my life or I just feel empty, like there's something that's missing. And that's when you start to struggle with God. And during that, that struggle, if you're seeking Christ, that's when you find him. You find him during that struggle period where you have this personal encounter. And then you say, you know what? I remember the faith of my father. I, I remember the things I was taught. But now, like at the end of Job, you say, you know, God, I heard about you, but now I see you with my own eyes because I see you working in my life. And that's really like kids that get get saved at a young age, they they learn about Christ and they 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 make that commitment. It's not uncommon for them to go through a faith crisis in their mid twenties because they start to question: Was I really saved, or was I playing playing along? When I got baptized, was I just going in the tank because everybody else in the youth group was going in the tank, mm-hmm. or did that really mean something to me? And so sometimes when when I'm talking to somebody that's 20 to 35, it may be a reassurance of salvation, but sometimes it's, hey, you didn't, you heard of Christ, but you've not had a personal encounter with him yet. And, and then, then that's something we need to talk about and look at scripture. Let's seek it out together and then let the Holy Spirit intervene. And that's, it's nice when somebody gets saved from not sharing their crayons. <laughs> but when you've got a, a grown, you know, when you've got a grown man or a grown woman that's been through some hell in their life, and they they just lay it out on the floor, and 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 say, God, whatever's left of this life, it's yours. And and you see them come to that that conversion experience, you know, when you've got a a, a grown man bearded up, tattooed, with tears streaming down his face, saying, Christ, I'm yours. That's so much more powerful. And, and that's what people, how do you know it's real? Man, I just look at, look at it. Look at me, you know, the blind man how, how, you used to be blind. How can you see now? Man, I don't know, but I can see that's, that's the testimony. And, and nobody can deny that you can't prove it or disprove it with science, but you can't deny it. And an analogy I, I use is, uh, or an allegorical story I use is, a man sitting in a jail cell. It's small county jail. He's sitting in the cell for 20 years. And the jailer's taking care of him. The jailer brings him food. I mean, it's not great, but he's feeding him. He lets him drink whiskey when he wants to. He brings in a woman once in a while. I mean, life isn't great, but it doesn't totally suck. But he's still stuck in his jail cell. And in the in his free time, in the evenings, he starts writing all the things he would do if he was free all the things that he would do on the outside world. And one day he gets up and he just out of curiosity, he walks over and pulls the latch on his cell and it's unlocked. And he steps out into the hall. He walks down the hall and the jailer's sitting there laughing at him. And he said, dude, my, my door's unlocked. And he said, yeah, it's been unlocked for 20 years. You just didn't, you, you, 
you just assumed you couldn't get out. And he said, well, why would you leave me locked up in a cell all that time and, and not tell me that I was really free? And he says, because I hate you. I hated your dad and I hate you. And I wanted to keep you locked up because the truth is you can walk out that front door. I'm stuck in this jail for eternity. I can't leave the jail. My fate's already been sealed. And that's what we're about to celebrate with Christmas. When Christ came, he was bringing the key. When he dies on the cross, he unlocks that, 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 that door. But if you're sitting in the cell and you have no hope of ever getting out, hope is what moves us to action. If we don't have hope, we don't act. That's one good one to read, too, is Eric Hoffer, True Believer. I don't know if you, if you ever read Hoffer, but Eric Hoffer worked in the um, shipyards. He was self-educated, but the psychosocial works that he, that he wrote were absolutely amazing. But really, it boils down to, for a mass movement, you have to have hope. You can't get a movement out of the people that are so low that they don't think they can rise above their circumstances. The people that are at the top have no desire for change because they're comfortable. They think they're, they have everything they need. But the folks in the middle that are unhappy with their circumstances but have hope that there may be something better, that's where you can get a mass movement going. And that explains a lot of the middle-class uprisings that we've had. And, and they're not always for good. I mean, you look at everybody from Pol Pot to Hitler to Mussolini, it's you got to get them. That's where you connect with the masses is a disgruntled masses. Mm -hmm. Well, take that to evangelism. Take that to that guy in that jail cell. If he thinks he can't get out, he never will because he'll, he needs hope to move him to action. But once he has enough hope to get up and try the door, that's, that's putting faith into action. That's, that's taking your faith and applying it or taking your hope and applying it through faith. And then you find out that the jail jailkeeper, the devil, he was just he, he's going to feed you just enough earthly pleasures. You want to get drunk in there? Get drunk. You want you want a whore every now and then? I'll take care of you, as long as you're convinced that that cell is as good as it's ever going to get. Because I hate you, because my fate was sealed a long time ago. I don't get to leave this jail. My, my eternity is, is in chains. But, it, but that's what, when a man feels like he has enough hope to step out of the cell, then he steps out of the prison. And that's what we're encouraging people to do is try the lock. Just one time, try the lock. I swear it's open. It's unlocked. And they're, they're stuck going, now. Nah, there's no way I can get out of what I'm in. You know, my, my, I, I've created too big of a mess for myself. And as a matter of fact, I probably deserve to be in jail, so I'm just going to stay here. And you're like, yeah, you do deserve to be in jail. But God taught us about a blood sacrifice. Christianity is the only world religion that God requires a payment and then gives the payment that's required. Every other, every other world religion requires a payment. You have to atone for sin, and then you're doing good works to try to get yourself to whatever the next level is. Christianity is the only one where God is the just and the justifier. One of my one of my favorite things that you have is not only are you are you referencing and providing evidence from 
uh, works of those that you've read and respect, uh, and then balancing that with your real world experience with uh, salt of the earth uh, working people who are struggling. But you also uh, you have a lot of great uh, phrases <laughs> um, as a writer and as as some as a as a a student of Americana, I um, I enjoy a good a good twist of phrase and a good quote. You have some a couple I'll definitely be writing down afterwards, trying to integrate into my own everyday uh, <laughs> conversation. I wanted I wanted to get into a bit about uh, who you were uh, before you came to Christ, before Soldiers for Jesus MC. Uh, I know you are uh, you know you were a master sergeant, uh, now retired, of course. Um, in the army, I know that you did military service overseas. Tell me a little bit about, you know, what was your experience like with faith and these bigger ideas of the mystical, the supernatural? What kind of your view was on life's bigger questions prior to coming to Jesus? I was raised in a family where the church we went to wasn't based on faith, but it was what was best what was the best place to go for dad and his job? Hmm. It was, you know, it, more of a political you know, type thing. He was out, out of all professions. My dad was a funeral director in Balmer. Oh, wow. So sometimes we lived in the funeral homes. Sometimes we lived in other houses, but, but he would work and manage funeral homes and do funerals. And so the town that I spent most of my youth in, the Catholic church was the kind of dominant meeting place. So we were taken to the Catholic church. And so I was raised with Catholicism, but really no practice outside of being forced to go to mass, forced to go to catechism classes. Um, But on the periphery of that, with all the problems that were going on at home with, you know, my dad lost his leg when he was 19 years old. And this was back before they had the high speed, you know, you know, prosthetics and things Mm -hmm. so you know he was on a casted artificial leg with a wool sock and you know he'd go to work every day literally on a bloody stump get called out in the middle of the night going to pick up bodies going to do working his tail off and you know i'd see him sitting in the bathtub scrubbing that the, the ulcerations and sores on his stump and over time it got to be grab two grab two beers with one hand and walk in and, and get in the bathtub and drink those beers and scrub that stump before he'd go to work in the morning. Then it was come home and drink a bottle of Chiani and go through go through beer. Um, alcohol was always present. By the time I was, I don't know, 12, 14 years old, it wasn't uncommon for a 12-pack of beer to come into the house for myself and my brother. One would get light beer and one would get regular beer so we could tell whose was whose to make sure that we didn't drink each other's beer, you know, mm-hmm. um, but alcohol was always, always present. And, um, mom was bipolar schizophrenic. So when I say my mom was crazy, she really was. I mean, like eating value out of a Pez dispenser nuts. And so, I mean, it was this rough dysfunctional home environment where, you know, dad's working his tail off and self-medicating with alcohol. Mom's sometimes on meds, sometimes not on meds. And my brother and I, and a sister, I got a sister too, um, but my brother and I were mostly just, you know, drinking, going to school, 
I'd go to school and we'd had uh, we we could leave for lunch. I'd go out for lunch, two burgers, two fries for two bucks, add two beers to that, and that was my daily lunch. Hmm. Um, you know, I come back into school. The, it was such an alcohol culture. I had a teacher after lunch, and, and she'd say, "Hey, do you want a search?" And I say, "No, I'm good." And she goes, "No, take a search." She could smell the alcohol, <laughs> but she was just trying to, you know, she'd cover for me. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, you. So every everybody's drinking, everybody's partying, everybody's smoking weed. Um, so then I had four four guys that I grew up with. Two of them were dead before they were old enough to drink illegal beer. Both of them were um, drug and alcohol related. One of them put a shotgun in his chest, but it's still drug and alcohol related because his charges got piled up so much that he didn't see any way out besides killing himself. Hmm. The, the other, the last time I saw him, he was in his Camaro with a beer between his legs and we planned on linking up after work, but he was already blown Coke by then. So he was on, he, he was full of cocaine and alcohol, wrapped his car around a telephone pole out in the country. So we buried him. The other guy ended up, you know, literally living in his van down by the river. Um, great, great brother still. Um, he came down. We went on a ri- nice ride last fall, um, came to church, uh, just got married. But um, but he's still he's, he's a, a coin carrying AA member and he's, he's been sober for a good while now. But so he got hard into alcoholism. I joined the army. So two died. One one went hard into alcohol. I joined the army, um, met my wife in high school. So she came in the army with me and I was, I still had that drinking around, but the army was a drinking culture. If you could drink a fifth of whiskey on a Wednesday night and on Thursday morning, do, do PT in the morning and, and, and run real hard and do the rucks and all that stuff, you weren't an alcoholic. You were hard as woodpecker lips. <laughs> and right. and you were patted on the back for that. Well, as, as time progressed, I started coming back from deployments, and I was having a harder time turning off Sergeant McKinney and turning on Dad and husband. And it, it's little things, but you see a kid that's freaking starving to death. And then you come home and your kid's crying about a, he can't have a candy bar and you want to smack the piss out of him. And, and so you got that, that kind of conflict. So I just started drinking Jim Beam and it, it would calm me down. The problem was I, I stopped mixing it. I just started drinking straight, you know, Jim Beam and I'd go through a fifth, you know, I get, my wife got upset with a buddy of mine he, and I, she said, every time you two get together, you finish a bottle. So the next time we got together, we bought the bottle with the handle on it. Um, that's the answer, right? Just buy a bigger bottle. That way you know. <laughs> right. It's just stupid. Right? I mean, so we go to Germany. Now I'm seeing all this stuff. And, I, and faith, in the, like I said, ever since when I was a kid, all this stuff was going on. And there were people in my life that were good to me that were, I knew they were Christians. I didn't care to be one. But I appreciated the calm in their homes. I appreciated the kindness that they showed me. So I was seeing what right looked like. I just didn't want to live it. As my life continued to roll into one crisis after another, and I continued to try to drink my way through that, we got stationed over in Germany. 
And I spent my entire career on Fort Bragg, except for that one one trip over to Germany. But I look back now and I see where God removed me from my friends. He removed me from my workplace. He took everything away from me except for family. Hmm. And I'm stuck in Germany. And they're drinking. And somebody came and invited my son to church in the bus ministry. He was an American missionary to soldiers stationed overseas. He came through the housing concern, invited, and I said, well, my daughter's too young, but my, my son, he can go. And he started going to church. Well, then he came home and started talking about how some guy took him out of the junior church and prayed with him in a closet. And I'm like, hell, he did. You know, I, <laughs> I wasn't okay with you. Know, it kind of freaked me out. But, so I agreed to go to church, but I was going to go to church and point out all the reasons we don't go to church. And I wanted to meet this dude that pulled my son off, you know, what's going on? It didn't work out the way I planned because I got in there and this preacher opened up scripture and he was preaching straight from the word and every bit of it was kicking me in the toes there. I almost <laughs> slipped. You know what I mean? Yeah. But it was really, yeah. I mean, like this guy's talking bad about me and, um, but I knew he was right. So, and I started remembering these people that were good to me when I was in a really bad place. And then I'm looking around this church and I'm seeing families and these dads that are with their wives and with their kids. And they, they seem to have something together that I didn't. So when the preacher talk about, you know, probably not a good idea to be a drunk, I'm, you know, I'm having to amen to that because every story I had that I wouldn't want my kids to know about, should have landed me in jail, something I'd be embarrassed about. They were always started with, I was drinking then. I was drinking and then I whatever. Mm -hmm. um, so when they said, hey, just, just drink, you know, alcohol, be, don't be a drunk. Got it. It's probably a good idea. So my coming to Christ was this struggle I'm talking about, which I'm okay with because that's why I can connect and talk with others that, that struggled. But you know, and I did the, you know, my approach away from God was very academic. Um, you know, I did everything I could to reject Catholicism. I looked at other world religions. I looked at, you know, who God is. I visited countries that had different, different faiths, different religions. When I, I, it's like, I didn't come to Christ. It's like he found me. And it started way back when I was a kid through people that were just serving him. So when I finally got in this church, started hearing scripture, I said, man, I, I want that, but I don't know how to get that. And so I started praying about it and started actually talking to God. And, and it was the weirdest thing. I, I said, um, God, I don't know what this salvation thing is that the preacher's talking about. But I know I, I know I'm a sinner. I mean, I know what I've done. You know what I've done. It was a pretty candid conversation. It wasn't like second verse of white as snow when I'm down at the altar saying some fancy prayer. This is me literally in the closet of my bedroom just being very candid. If you're real, I, I want to know about it because I know what I've done. I know who I am. If you're real, I just need, and I said these words, I said, I, I need you to make it well with my soul. I don't know why I said those words, 
but it was on a Wednesday, went to church on Wednesday night. A guy named uh, Brother Al, I can't think of his, uh, his, la his uh, last name, but he was a, a guy from Georgia that was a missionary to Germans. So he would come to our church, the, the American soldier church in Germany. He would come there, but then he would hold a separate service for Germans. And he never sang. He didn't sing in the choir. But the pastor called him up and he said, hey, Brother Al's got a, um, a song special he wants to sing tonight. He said, God just laid it on his heart and he wants to sing this old hymn. And he got up and he sung this old hymn called It Is Well With My Soul. That's the very first time that God intimately intervened in my life, where it almost creeped me out a little bit. Right. Because I was seeking, you know, I had heard there's only one mediator between God and men, and that's the man Christ Jesus. I had verses like that that broke the foundation of Catholicism because I didn't have to go to a priest. I could go straight to God. So I went straight to God. But that saying, it, you know, I need this to be well with my soul. And then that night, a guy gets up and sings an old hymn, It's Well With My Soul. And now all of a sudden, I'm not getting kicked anywhere except for in the heart. And it, it completely punched me in the chest. I wasn't ready for it, but it shook me. And I said, okay, this is, this is the real deal. And then I was in church on Wednesdays. I was there Sunday morning, Sunday night. I, I just couldn't get enough of the word, the preaching. And... I was told, they said, read the book of John. I said, okay, I'll read the book of John. So I'm sitting in my recliner at the house, and I'm reading the book of John. And my wife looks over, and I'm crying. And I didn't do a lot of crying. I mean, I literally, in the country of Egypt, a little kid was begging and tripped. And I, I one foot hit the ground. My next foot landed in the middle of her back. She was like maybe uh, maybe seven, eight-year-old little girl. And I stopped right in her back and kept walking. And they're like, and she starts crying. And the guy with me goes, oh, they'll, they'll cry like that asking, you know, just to get money. I said, no, no, I, I stepped on her. I mean, no emotion. I didn't care. Now I'm sitting in my recliner reading the book of John and I got tears rolling down my face. And I couldn't turn the pages fast enough. And she said, are you all right? And I said, yeah, you know, give me a minute. And I finished reading. And she said, what, what are you crying about? And I said, I just read where they took Jesus to the cross and killed him. And I've heard that story, you know, a hundred times before. We, we've all heard about, you know, you know, Easter. But that's the first time I ever read it and realized that he went to the cross for me. And, and, and then it was, okay, well, now what am I going to do with this? My intent was to come back because I was medically discharged from Germany. I did. I made master sergeant in 15 years. Um, I was, you know, easy road. I was going to, I was going to come back make Sergeant Major and, you know, the career, the career thing was, was fast tracking. Um, that's, that's actually quick. It only goes to E9 Sergeant Major. I was an E8. Okay. Um, so, I mean, it, it, I, I fast tracked up to there and then I found that and I, I come to Christ and then I start getting, my wrist started hurting, my knees, everything has got pain that I couldn't explain because I wasn't before I had pain, but I was jumping out of airplanes and humping rucksacks and stuff all the time. Right. So I expected pain in my life, but now I got pain and I'm not doing anything to earn it. I went and saw a rheumatologist and got diagnosed with a thing. It's a subset of lupus called Bichette's. And they said, well, you're not, you're not going to be able to stay in the army. We're going to have to put you out because of the meds you're going to go on. 
Yeah, so we got so we get this uh, come to Christ thing. Now you're right. The the, the grass is supposed to be greener, sky's supposed to be bluer, everything's wonderful, right? I come to Christ and I start saying, "Okay, my life's yours. What do you want me to do?" And then I get sick. <laughs> and I said, "Really? This is the plan? Uh, you know, I'm supposed to be a sergeant major in the army, and or in the army, and um, we got a different plan." And a lady in the church told me, she said, "You know what? God doesn't waste time." And I said, "Well, okay, I, I see where." Yeah, I've wasted a lot of time, but everything that I, I can look back and see God intervening in my life all the way up to this point. So I'm just going to go through this with some with some faith, tiny faith, baby faith. But if I'm sick, I'm sick. I'm going to get out of the army. But I'm going to go back and try to reach some of those that are where I used to be. Because when I was in the army, I wasn't trying to lead anybody to the Lord. I was going the other direction. I was like, hey, I'm headed to hell. Hop in the truck. You will all go together. And so I wanted to come back and get involved in military ministry. And when I first started trying to get involved with veterans, there were other, like churches had military ministries, but they were all the people that were already saved and doing pretty well. Right. I met a guy that was... They were just starting up a motorcycle club. Everybody in it were Iraq and Afghanistan vets. And like I said, every war produces clubs. And this was those, these were mostly 3rd Special Forces groups, some 7th Group guys, because 7th Group hadn't moved down to Florida yet, um, 82nd, some PSYOP guys. But um, we, were, we were coaching football together, and we, started, we were riding together, and he said, hey, would you consider being the chaplain of our club? You know, we're not a we're not a Christian club, but we're a veteran based club that has some Christian values. And I, I don't want to say their name, but they name themselves after what our enemies call us. And all of their symbology and stuff is like Templar Knight stuff. And um, because they, they understand that this war that they've been sent on, even if America doesn't call it a holy war, our enemies do. They get a vote in, in what we call this thing. Um, so th they asked if I'd come be the chaplain of the club. And that's how I got into motorcycle ministry is I was trying to reach veterans and the veterans that were in the most need of ministry were guys I was meeting in the motorcycle club world. Right, so I'm a chaplain in the secular club and I'm working with vets that are coming home having a hard time adjusting, a hard time plugging in. And one, you know, that kind of led to, you know, th this one club I'm in, but there's like 30 patches in town. So how do I start it reaching out to others? And the way it ended up working is I left the secular club when, when I found soldiers because soldiers being neutral allowed me to go to all the clubs equally. Mm. So mm. I was able to expand my ministry in this area to veterans. So my whole thing was I never planned on being a motorcycle club minister. I wanted to, I wanted to minister to the vets that were where I was, but God's in God's perfect plan. He worked it out where I came home and ended up in a motorcycle club, ended up doing motorcycle club ministry. And when I was in Germany and uh, a, a preacher came over, an evangelist, and he preached a message, and I wrote down in the front of my Bible, 2 Timothy 2, 1 through 5. That's uh, enduring hardness is a good soldier for Christ Jesus. Paul's telling Timothy, hey, take all this crap I've taught you, and, and then go find other people that can teach, and, and then teach it to them also. 
and, and in the army, we call that train the trainer. You know, in, in, in the church, we call that discipleship. Go out and take what you, you know, but then disciple others so that they can go out. And, that, and we're going to spread this message. So I wrote that down in my Bible. And when I met soldiers and it was my time to start prospecting, they said, there's a, <coughs> excuse me. They said, there's a, uh, our, our charter verse or our, our um, biblical mandate is 2 Timothy 2, 1 through 5, where that's where we get our name. Soldiers for Jesus comes from endure hardness as a good soldier for Christ Jesus. And, and he was going to read it to me. And I said, hold on a second. Let me show you something. I opened up my Bible. I said, seven years ago, during the first year of my salvation, I wrote this scripture down, this verse down in the front of my Bible. So if you don't mind, could I read it? And that's where, again, that's the second time that God very intimately spoke into my life, where I knew I was exactly where I was supposed to be at the time. And and, and then, you know, as they say, the rest is history. I, I prospected, became a chapter member, became a chapter president, eventually became national secretary. And then still working with the chapter, but started up Sand Hills Biker Church. And, and during that time, I, now I'm still, none of that is, you know, you know, nobody in the organization takes a penny, not even the board. Every, it's 100% volunteer work. The church, 100% volunteer work. It's, it's in our bylaws. Nobody takes a penny. So we all have to have day jobs. Well, I was blessed that my day job is right in PSYOP doctrine at the Special Warfare Center in schools. Wow. So God took me out as a master sergeant in PSYOP, but then we come back to the States. I'm trying to find jobs. We met a girl that was 16 years old in foster care that was raped from the time she was two to nine and then molested several times by different homes. We ended up adopting her, um, brought her into the house, and then I land this job where I went back into the SIAP community, but now I'm writing their doctrine, which gets turned into their training manuals, and it's the how-tos, you know, best practices and things um, of communicative. SIAP is just communicative influence. It's, it's we're using communications like your podcast to influence cultures, peoples all over the world. And um, so I've been able to do that as my day job, which in the Army, I wouldn't have been able to do full-time, quote, air quote, full-time ministry. But as a doctrine writer, 40 hours a week, nights and weekends off, leave as a civilian in the government. I've got all the vacation time and weekends off and holidays. So God worked it out where he said, yeah, I'm going to pull you out. Don't worry, Job. I'm going to replace your income, but you're going to go through a, 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 a straining season or a testing season where you're going to learn to live by faith. So you're going to go through this period of being ill, bouncing around, doing odd jobs. Worst one was substitute teaching. Don't do that. <laughs> My my my, my nine year old uh, came home talking about the substitute teacher yesterday, and it, it, yeah, it brought back memories of. She was basically telling me everything her and her friends were getting away with. Yeah, my wife's an elementary school teacher. Um, you know, has been her, her whole career. I mean, she's been doing it for a while. And so when I was sick, I thought, well, I could sub once in a while. That that's rough because they don't respond like soldiers do because they don't have to. <laughs> Sit down. No. 
I got nothing. I'm not allowed, you know, I can't, I, I can't smoke you. I can't make you low, tr- low, you know, low crawl till your elbows bleed. I got nothing here. And, um, and then, you know, so and, and we, again, people were like, you guys are crazy. You're in this situation in your life where you're sick. You have no money. Why are you adopting a, a kid that's been through all this trauma and is going to need all kinds of care? And I said, because we watched her get baptized and God laid it on our heart that we just watched our daughter get baptized. We weren't looking for her. She, you know, God said, this is your daughter. And so again, stepped out on faith. We adopted her and it was tough. I mean, you got a, you got a son that, that needs attention and you got a daughter standing there with a knife in one hand and, and you can see tendons in the other. And she said, daddy, I cut myself, you know, and I go, okay, load her up, take her to the hospital. Um, but what that did was it showed our kids that when we talk about sacrificial giving and in a, a sacrificial serving faith, we mean it. We're not just doing church. And, and so in our home, they came to a point where they learned what sacrificial giving is. Now they know better how to love others. So it, it was all part of God's plan. And, and then eventually he said, he put me in a job that, replace my income. So now I'm getting, you know, the retirement check plus as much money as I would have made as a master sergeant sergeant major from my civilian job. And I can come out and do motorcycle ministry. I'm reaching the vets that I had a heart for, um, you know, was able to start up a church and, and not have to take any money in. Uh, we do the church out of the clubhouse. So we're able to invite, you know, people from the neighborhood, people that we meet out in town, and, and we don't have to pass a plate. It's all taken care of. We just present them with the gospel and hope and let them know that that cell door is open. They just got to walk out of it. And um, so, yeah, I mean, that's kind of, that's my story. The book that I, that's out now, Unchained Rebel, that, that's really uh, an introduction to the motorcycle club world and the, and the world of motorcycle club ministry. But what, what's cool about that, it's a fiction, but every single testimony given to the main character as he goes through his journey are all true stories of people we've ministered to every single one of them. And that's what makes it so powerful. Um, but harvester of hope, it's kind of along those lines, but it's all my military guys. Um, there's going to probably be a dual authorship with myself and a special forces sniper did his whole career, retired a chief warrant officer too. And, um, uh, this guy's the guys I'm talking to definitely have a story to tell from, and that's where Harvester of Hope Harvester was his sniper call sign, it, and his spotter was Reaper. He had Harvester and Reaper. Well, during his deployments, he starts struggling with that disconnect with family, and now he's home, and he's struggling to connect with an America that he thinks has forgotten about him in the war. So he gets together with some guys and they go on a road trip to Sturgis just to get away. But on this road trip, some things happen that start to force them to talk about the problems they've had. They're confronted with their own humanity. But instead of harvesting people, he's harvesting hope. He's gaining hope as he goes through his journey so that by the time they return from this road trip to Sturgis, their, their lives have all changed. The, the five of them that go out together, their lives have all changed in some way. 
Um, so that's kind of the story arc, but it's, it's instead of taking the one character through the motorcycle club world, it's going to be, it takes the, the, it deals with the military and, and the, and the family aspect of coming home. Yeah. Harvester of hope is going to be that that's on it. It's for up for pre pre-release now, but I'm not going to release it until veterans day next year. I want a veterans day release. And because we're this sniper friend of mine, um, he and I are working together to possibly do a prequel where it'll be the downrange stuff that leads up to him coming home and starting. So it may be harvester of death, harvester of hope, then harvester of life. So we're, we're trying to decide if we want to do a series or not. So, but for right now, harvester of hope is up for pre-release on iBooks and um, unchained rebels. Of course, that's available on Amazon and, Barnes and Noble and all those places. That's cool. It makes it makes it a uh, a trilogy then if you end up doing it going that route. Yeah, it, it, I think we might because Harvester of Hope is. I mean, that's that's packaged. But the more I talk to him, there's there's a story of it's the only really unconventional warfare that's been successful in this entire campaign. And it's unconventional warfare is when we train indigenous people to stand up and fight for themselves. And he was involved in that and he wants to tell their story of Black Flag Rising. And we may work in the main character from Harvester of Hope into the character that tells their story. Um, and then roll that into a second a second book because it, there, every war has had its story told but from different angles. Um, right now we're in the history phase where people are capturing the history as it happens. So there's stories about specific battles that have taken place. Um, but what we haven't gotten to is a place where we start talking about the deeper psychosocial issues of the war. And if you look back at like some of the first stories that came out about Vietnam, they, they, they touched heavy on you know, like Apocalypse Now, was it was all about the, the, the war itself and how chaotic and crazy it was. Years later, the movie Platoon comes out, and it talks about the, the, the people and, and the persons and the struggles. Um, so I, I think with being at war for over 15 years in Iraq and Afghanistan, the history stories have been told. But we haven't really captured... What what's the life of those guys once they come home? The Punisher uh, series that just came out on Netflix last month, surprisingly, perhaps it actually deals with um, a lot of this PTSD uh, from the Afghanistan conflict in particular. Uh, the majority of the characters are all uh, either current or former military, and obviously it's through the lens of of this comic book world. And uh, you know, the Punisher is ultimately a, a revenge tale about a oh, that, character. That, but that Punisher skull is all over the place. I mean, right. We love that. Yeah, that's a that that's a big. That's yeah, a, well, I would recommend if, if you get a chance to check out that that series. I think it's the best take on that character they've done. But yeah, a PTSD plays into it pretty heavily in the, the experience of uh, people coming back from Afghanistan and trying to fit into the world. And of course, that character goes back to 1974, I think, and. You know they've updated the backstory to make him a a, a veteran, an Afghanistan veteran. Uh, but originally Frank Castle was a Vietnam veteran, 
that's how long the character's been around. And, you know, every decade or so they they bring him up to date, so he's not a you know seventy year old <laughs> superhero. Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely watch it because that's PTSD is is it again with my background. I look at that from multiple angles, but PTSD is so misunderstood. Everybody has PTS. You can't go through high stress environment for a long period of time and not have post traumatic stress. Mm. The the D the post traumatic stress disorder is when you can't recover from it to the point of being functional. Um, you know, the people that were shot up in, in Las Vegas had post-traumatic stress, but over time, they're going to start to process that, normalize it. But we've got guys that are going down range and they're staying down so often. Every time you go down range, your testosterone levels drop. And we've got guys that are coming back and they're dealing with fatigue, depression, sterility, and they don't realize it's because they're at zero testosterone levels. They're, they're basically coming back sterile. Um, it, it's things like that. Like people think of PTSD as I saw my buddy, buddy get blown up next to me. But go a little bit deeper. If your dad always told you, son, I'm proud of you. Great job. You did the best you could. You know, not everybody gets a trophy, but you know, you, you did your part. If you get that kind of life and then you go down range and two of your buddies on a patrol get killed, that's going to affect you that they got killed, but you may not carry that as your fault. You may carry that as a loss, but if you had a childhood, you're never good enough. You can't do Jack. You're never going to amount to anything. And you say, you know what? Screw you. I'll prove you wrong. I'm going to go to infantry school. And then, then I still, but I still don't feel validated. So I'll go to airborne school. Then I'll go to ranger school. Then I'll go special forces. Now I've got all these, I'm cooler than you guy tabs. But on the inside, my little, little dude that lives inside of me still thinks I'm never going to be good enough. I'm never going to, you know, and now two buddies get killed on a patrol. Whose fault is it? It's my fault. So I'm going to carry that the rest of my life that I got two of my buddies killed. Now I've got post-traumatic stress and it becomes a disorder because I can't deal with my family. I have, you know, I'm, I'm completely disassociated from everything. I don't want to feel pain. I don't want to feel love. I don't want to feel anything. I'm just going to, I'm going to live in my, in my shell. And that's the, the depths of dealing with PTSD that we got to look at you know, way beyond where the guy was before we sent him to Afghanistan and when he came back, we got to look at that whole person and say, what's going on that caused him to be more susceptible? What's he carrying? And was it, sometimes it's just the hopelessness of, of war. You know, a lot of these guys, I mean, end of the day, you joined the military for a reason. Your personality type may be that you can shoot somebody in the face and not feel real bad about it. That doesn't mean something's wrong with you. It means you were the type of person that was able to go do that, and we hire them to go fight our wars. But when you come home and the world's telling you that that's a bad thing, that you have to be sensitive, that you have to feel bad about what you did, and a guy says, I, I, I don't feel bad. I really don't feel anything about it. I did my job. And that's a lot of this this stuff that, that we hope to cover in the book. And it's, it's cool if they're covering a, a comic, it doesn't matter the media channel, 
as long as there's somebody telling guys that it's your experiences, you get to you get to own them. Don't let somebody else define how you're supposed to feel about what you did and, and how you did it. So I had a whole nother discussion. One more question for you before I let you go. Okay. What's the origin of slow roll? <laughs> it's exactly why we're still on this phone call. Um, <laughs> I I appreciate a good long conversation, and I and I and as you may guess, uh, you know, I, I may have once or twice been accused of being long winded myself. So <laughs> you've got plenty of material to chop up and do an hour long podcast for sure. Um, but slow roll came from we would go to events, and I would tell the guys, "Hey, we need to start saying our goodbyes." The new guys would go over to their bikes and get their helmets on. The old guys would go buy a Coca-Cola <laughs> because they knew it was going to take me at least an hour to say goodbye because I'm I'm slow to roll out. And and sometimes they would be like, "Hey man, we we got to get we got to hit the house." And I said, "Man, slow your roll. We're just getting started." <laughs> you know, <laughs> bike night just ended at, at ten o'clock, and, and you know, I'm, we're having conversations here. So it was slow your roll, slow to roll out. Before long, it was just a slow roll. <laughs> when are we leaving? And uh, because I like to visit. That's what, so, yeah, that's where slow roll comes from. It's not because I couldn't roll a joint. It's not because I don't know how to ride a motorcycle fast. It's I like to visit and I'm slow to roll out. And, slow uh, to roll out. I love it. Well, man, slow roll. Thank you so much. I, uh, I've really I really enjoyed corresponding with you in the run up to this conversation. I've enjoyed this conversation tremendously. Let's talk again really soon. find no prize from god on various social media platforms you can find me at ryan downey on twitter at superhero hq on instagram no prize from god is part of the pop curse podcast network and as always you guys have been great and i've been ryan j downey